Has anybody ever wondered, what's the main cause of social injustice? I don't know if anybody has ever asked themselves that. Well, let me help you answer that question. And as, as according to study.com, the main root of social injustice is unequal treatment. Consequences can be dire when social injustices are not addressed, and it is important for people from all backgrounds to work together to find solutions to this problem. So you look at the main root cause of social injustice is unequal treatment. It's pretty simple. Being treated unfairly, being treated unequally. Why is that such a hard thing for us to get around? Why is that such a hard thing for us to fix? Why is it such a prevalent issue across the world? I don't have the answer to that. But maybe today in, in our conversation, we can at least shed some, shed some light on the issues that, is, that are happening down in the United States. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about some of the experiences that black people are having when it comes to relationships with police officers. Shedding light on those situations and those experiences might help people understand a little bit more, a little bit more clearly what is happening down there. Maybe it doesn't answer the questions for us. Maybe it doesn't give us the insight that we need. But maybe it provides a little bit of an opportunity for us to be more understanding and more empathetic to those people who are dealing with the situations down in the South, who are dealing with these situations in Canada, who are dealing with these situations across the globe. You'd be a fool to think that it's only happening in certain places, and you'd be a fool to think that you haven't been a part of some of the social injustices. Again, let's break that down. What does it mean or how does it cause? It's caused by people being treated unequally. I think we can, you know, we, if, you, if you give yourself an opportunity to reflect back on situations and circumstances that you've been involved with in your life, I would think you'd be hard-pressed to find a circumstance where you haven't been or haven't treated people unequally. I think that's a fair assessment. You'd be lying if you told yourself that you had never been sexist, ageist, racist, discriminatory. All of these things happen all the time. We often look at what definitions are and immediately chase it to the most extreme example and then compare ourselves to that and say, well, hey, you know, I was never, I never overtly did anything wrong to a person of color. I've never done that. These things happen all the time. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself for one minute thinking that you sit on a perch higher than anybody else. We've all made these mistakes. But if we can reflect on that and recognize what it was that we did and figure out a way to change our attitude, to change our mindset and to change where we or how we approach things, we could certainly make life easier for a lot of people and we can also support and stand up for the social injustices that we are seeing. Today, the conversation surrounding social injustice is an important one. And I am honored to bring these two guests to the table. Now I'm gonna preface my introductions by saying, I hadn't met James or Brittany in any specific capacity before the conversations that you're about to hear. Brittany really got me started into podcasting almost, well, it's over a year ago now. 
when she helped get me off the ground, myself and Sonny, with our first podcast, Last Minute GM. She has her own podcast, which you can find on all major podcasting platforms called Let's Be Honest. And her discussions surround self-help and self-healing, which I don't know if there's if there could possibly be enough of it today, especially after being locked up and going through a global pandemic for two years. She is very insightful and she is very articulate and she was very generous with her time to sit down and talk with me over a period of two days discussing social injustice and some of the experiences that she had as a black female in the United States. Joining her is James Robinson and James is a black male living in the States. He grew up in Georgia uh, and more specifically as he explained it to me in Georgia this is where tension between police officers and black peoples have always traditionally been very high. Now he comes at this conversation with a degree that concentrates in history and sociology. He really is an advocate for trying to improve upon relationships between police officers and black people, but also enjoys talking about the race relations and police brutality, because those are more specifically the issues that are happening down in the United States currently. Now bear in mind, He's not coming at it trying to point fingers at people because he is very well aware of the things that are that drive like the driving factors behind some of the circumstances that are being experienced. He has friends and relatives who are in law enforcement. I'm very excited to bring episode one of two regarding social injustice. Such an important conversation, such a powerful conversation with two awesome individuals. I'm excited to get started. This is the Billy Wonk experience. Let's get it going. <laughs> there we go. Here we are. James and Bree, I really appreciate you joining me today. How are you guys doing? Thank you, Daryl. Hey, good morning. Great afternoon. Yeah, right. <laughs> three different three different time zones. We were trying to get situated yesterday, and it caused a bit of kerfuffle this morning. Anyway. Kerfuffle. <laughs> we got uh, discombobulated. Yeah, there you go. So today, guys, we had talked about this. There's a lot of lead up to the conversation for today, and uh, the biggest issue that we are going to discuss today, which is going to take a lot of time, is social justice, or better yet, the social injustice issues that. The United States is facing. It's all over the world, I think. You see it in Canada as well. Um, but more specifically, when it comes to Black people and the issues that you guys are facing with systemic racism, the social injustices that we've seen over the last little while, if 2020 has taught us anything, it is that as a society, and I guess as a race, the human race itself just has to do way better than what we've been doing for the last few hundred years. And we've made a lot of strides, I think, if anything, in 2020 it's made us really sit down and reassess where things are and how we have to adjust. But let me ask you, James, when you think, when you think about social injustices, what's the first thing that you think about? Uh, well, there's a, there's a, well, first thanks for having, having me and, and Bree both on the show. Um, social injustice to me is 
when you have a group of people who have access to resources or acknowledgement in the event that anything happens, the response will be the same regardless of who that person is. So if I get pulled over, say for example, for speeding, uh, regardless of whether I'm black, Hispanic, Asian, regardless of my background, my ethnicity, I don't have to worry that the outcome will be different because of what I look like, that we'll all have the same experience. And that's just one example with law enforcement. It could be with anything. It could be uh, access to uh, being able to live in a certain community. You know, that, that you know, social means the group of people, right? So uh, the, the justice or injustice means the, you know, the, the amount of fairness that goes into how those, that group of people are treated. Uh, so for me, first thing I think about is, you know, will the experience, the outcome be the same regardless of the individual? Okay. So Bree, would you say that in all facets of life, social justice is prevalent, but no, like no more prevalent than it is dealing with the police? Uh, let's see. How can I say this? <laughs> Again, thank you for having us. Um, I do feel as though um, police actually get away with a lot. Um, I think it's been going on. I think that now with, again, cameras, um, video cams, everything that's being, everything can be presented and everybody can actually see it. So I think that now we're getting a chance to see things on a deeper level rather than back in the 1980s where, you know, it, cameras weren't a big thing. Um, so I do believe that with everything going on, I feel as though accountability needs to be put in place. And I think that everybody should be treated equally. Um, and I think that's what Black people want in general. I think that's what we've been preaching for a while, just being treated equally. And I think as a, as a human race, I mean, we all want that, right? Whether you're, whether you're experiencing mistreatment in law enforcement or if it's mis, you know, misrepresentation, if it is in the education system, whatever it is, I mean, everybody wants accountability to some degree. And we want that fairness to be something that is held true. Um, because the one thing that keeps coming around when I, when I hear about injustices that are going on, I think the biggest issue that we face in addition to, to injustice is empathy. Right. There's a lot of situational factors that play into different people's experiences. And, and you, you know, like, I mean, let's talk about a traffic stop with the police, for instance, right? Um, I'm white. I still get nervous getting pulled over by the police. And I think that's just because of the authoritative figures that they are or that what they represent in society. But my fear isn't that I'm going to be shot. Mm. But, you know, regardless of what that officer is facing, there's got to be some empathy for that person because you literally only experience what is it, a five to 10 minute transaction with that person? Right. And whatever that experience is can completely derail or propel that person's day from that experience alone. So, yeah. you know, you, you, think about, you think about getting pulled over and I mean, for me, I don't worry about being shot, but I mean, how many times do you guys think about that being pulled over by the police that the, the reaction to your actions is way more severe than what it should be. Right. And I think for, for me, um, cause I know we kind of touched on it yesterday, just talking in general, you know, I've been pulled over as a black woman and I don't have anything in the car. I'm not, you know, I'm perfectly fine. And my heart has dropped. Mm -hmm. um, I think 
if I if I have to think 360 and I have to think about everybody as an officer, um, you don't know what's going on. Like you don't know what's on somebody's brain. But then as a black person, I don't know what's on their brain. I don't know what type of mood they're in. I don't know, like, you know, if they're having a bad day, if they're having a good day. Um, and so I think that it's scary for both parts. Um, and that's just me talking from a level of, I wanted to be a police officer. Like I was getting ready to go into the police academy and I had so many people talk me down. Like, no, right now it's not a good time to be a police officer, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I, can, I can look at both sides, um, but I can also, like you said, just your example, you're not worrying about getting shot. Um, I think as black people, because we are now, it's like we're getting adjusted to that's what our life looks like when we have an encounter with the black, well, with a police officer that that's just our anxiety gets hyped up. We, we don't, we don't know how to feel or we don't know what's going on in their head. So James, if, would you say that in the last, I don't know, what, what can we say that social media has represented or been, it has impacted society like 10 years, 15 years? Has it been, has it yeah. had that big of an impact for that long? Yeah, I would say since 2004-ish, okay. you know, that's when Facebook seemed like it started to take off. I remember then Facebook required you to have an EDU account. So that was specifically for students. And then before that, I guess it was MySpace for a little bit of time. Okay. Yeah. But social media so, has definitely driven things. So if you think about circa 2004 then, has, has the, the issues that you face, do you feel as a race of people um, gotten worse or better because of social media when it comes to the social injustice issues that you face. And let's, let's just, let's just speak more primarily to being pulled over by police. Have things gotten worse, better, or have they changed at all because of social media? I think the attention has shifted. Um, so when you talk about social media, I don't think that it just started in 2004. I don't, I think that sort of is the new, the new, uh, I guess, pace that we're, we're going at. Because if you think about uh, the, the Emmett Till situation, Jet Magazine would have been considered the equivalent of a social media at that time. So, that, you know, for those who don't know, you know, Emmett Till was someone who was, you know, uh, brutally murdered by, by a group of white men. Uh, his face was beaten to the form of unrecognition. And the mother said, we're going to have an open casket funeral because she wanted the world to see what was going on behind closed doors. When that happened, the entire world literally was able to see what racism and white supremacy looked like in America. Now that we have you know, Facebook, now that we have social media and not just that, but police cams, we're able to see not only what's happening in the backwoods of the deep south or in the LA's or in different parts of the world of the country, but we're able to also see kind of both sides, you know, what the, what the person was doing, what the officer was doing. Uh, so I think that things have gotten better in the sense that now there's more awareness. Now, does that mean that there's still not a problem. No, we still have a problem. It just means that now we have more resourceful information to say, wow, this is the conversation that's being had by the law enforcement before and after the shooting. Mm -hmm. You know, now we are able to see what it looks like in, you know, Harrelson County, Georgia, or in Carmel, Indiana, or any parts of the country now when law enforcement has an interaction with 
an individual. So we used to only rely on what the police said, right? Yeah. The officer gives their announcement. Well, now you see people as soon as someone's being pulled over, they have their cameras out. Yeah. And they're they're recording. And if the and it's a form of accountability. So I would argue that things have uh, things have improved because there is a degree of accountability and that things have improved in the sense that now people are aware of what's going on. But the the culture surrounding law enforcement is still unchanged. I don't see that it's gotten a lot better because you still have the whole culture of the prosecutor who says, hey, if this officer does something that is what we would consider bad policing, it's still almost impossible to convict that law, that law officer or that law enforcement agent. Not even convict, but even if we back up and just say charging that law enforcement uh, officer. Um, that's part of the culture that's more still the problem. So I would say that the structure is still problematic and it still uh, probably has gotten, you know, I wouldn't, I'm careful to say it's gotten better, but I will say that the, um, the overall awareness has gotten a lot better as far as people are able to kind of see what's going on. seems like there's a lot more transparency because of social media and CCTV, right? The body cams, everything else that's happened. I wouldn't say that I mean, it does help with accountability, but there's more transparency, raw transparency in the sense that we all get to see real time what's going on. Whether you're a right. bystander watching what's happening, whether it's a body cam of a police officer, whether it's somebody inside a vehicle recording it, there is no way to hide anymore. And I'm not suggesting that people were hiding before, but when it came down to a police officer's word versus your word, who is more believable at the end of the day? Correct. Only because of a badge, right? So We'll get into some other detail first, but I wanted to ask this question because you brought up a really good point about how things have not necessarily gotten better because of social media, but the accountability part is still really important. So where did everything, like, where did it go wrong? When did that trust factor start becoming such an issue and why did it become an issue? I think you have to look at the origin of law enforcement in America. And if you do that, you can't, you can't talk about law enforcement and its origin without acknowledging slavery. Uh, so we have state patrol officers, you know, we see them all over the deep south. Um, but if you, if you look at patty rollers, that's what this, the slaves referred to the uh, early law enforcement as, or patty rollers. And their job was to, um, to find escaped slaves. And also uh, after the Emancipation Pro- Proclamation, once slavery was outlawed, you still had these uh, these patty rollers, these patrol officers who would go into the community, find freed slaves and still beat them, still in, uh, find ways to incarcerate them for petty reasons. Now, if you look at other parts of the world, law enforcement, you know, they were used for different reasons. So if you look at parts of Europe, they were used to protect uh, the, the, the ships that were bringing in cargo and things like that. And if you fast forward to where we are now, that culture is still there. Uh, so I think that in order to answer that, we have to look at how things started. And, you know, even in parts of the Deep South now, you still have people who are members of, uh, you know, the sheriffs and deputy members who are members of the Ku Klux Klan who are considered law enforcement, who still have that badge. Uh, so to answer that question, we have to really look at the, the, the origin. And the origin was to intimidate and to control and that's still, that's why we have this large degree of distrust now. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think incarcerations in the United States has become a business, but not only just a business, a very profitable one. 
Um, I watched a documentary on Netflix. I think it was, uh, is it called the 13th or 13? I can't remember what it was. And it yeah, talked the about the 13th Amendment, right? Yep. Um, so it, it essentially says once slavery was abolished, they started to put black people in jail because they realized that having free labor was a necessity. And right. it's to the point now where it's a multi-billion dollar industry having people in jail, which is pretty, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's filled with black people though. Correct. And so I don't mean amazing in a good way. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think that that's what's happening. We can put people in jail to earn money. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't say <laughs> thanks for clearing it up but i didn't take it that way okay all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah no so i mean it's it's hard to ask the question you know when did we lose the trust because i don't think trust was ever there um mm-hmm. I, I i i don't i just think that we coped and because we coped we attempted to stay out of the way and we attempted to if you get pulled over mind your business and and be respectful and don't do this because they they do have a badge and they can rule you and they can put you in jail if they need be um so i think that the trust was never there i think that it it it's just been what we've been dealing with for generations and now being that social media is there and being that the news can you know flash it and show and things of that nature and it's not a police officer's word against you know a black person's word it's kind of like it's it's gonna it's gonna take a very long time to even try to build what we would call it even trust Mm -hmm. um so for me it's it's been this way and if we look at the origin of it it's like how can i trust you when we can go back for so many so many decades to say you hurt my ancestors or you 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 know you killed us you murdered us you hung us you did so many things so now why should i trust you now yeah i think that's the thing when i look at that too it's a huge issue i don't know how i don't know how you get out of it right i don't know how you have an honest look on at at because you're essentially dissecting the entire history of the United States and where things have mm-hmm. actually derived from. And I mean, right. what color were the forefathers, the founding fathers of your country? Mm-hmm. You know, like, to me, I think there's a, there's a huge issue and I don't know how you deal with that. Right. And I, we're not going to, we're not going to solve the world's problems here today about that kind of stuff, but um, it's certainly an interesting conversation. So then when you, when you look at the, the amount of mistrust with social justices and then the black lives matter movement started last year. I shouldn't say it started. It was amplified and magnified last year with all the things that were going on for me, watching that in Canada, I understand what it means to me. And to me, it means black lives matter is the equivalent of all lives matter. I think in the sense that it shouldn't matter what color your skin is. It's not one person stands up to say that you're, you're superior to the rest in terms of a race. It's everybody raising their hand to say that we're all just as important as the next person standing beside us. Am I wrong in thinking that? No. Um, I, I think what's the biggest thing for us is when we say black lives matter, people think that we're speaking as if nobody else matters and that's not the case. Um, for me, um, what you think is, is, is right. We, again, we want to be treated equally. Nobody should have to be in fear for their life. If it's going to be a traffic stop, allow it to be a traffic stop. Um, but it, it's very hurtful when we do say that lives matter, not trying to negate from anybody else. Someone else says, well, all lives matter. Well, we know that we're speaking about us right now in this moment, because we're the ones who's being tortured. We're the ones who we have is getting killed. Um, so yeah, no, good point. What do you think, James? I think, uh, Daryl, the qu- the question, so you, you said all lives matter, right? Which 
And, and you, you said, am I wrong for that? I, I don't think that it's a matter of right or wrong as much as it is being able to see this from a holistic perspective. Uh, so it's almost, you know, I had a friend of mine who um, found out that, you know, that they're, they're, the, the wife had a miscarriage. And in that moment, I could have responded and said, well, you know, most people have miscarriages. You know, everyone has miscarriages, right? And, and I use that as an example to say that that could just be my way of not being able to empathize in that moment versus saying, hey, listen, man, I'm really sorry to hear what happened. And you know, I want to provide my support, let you know my thoughts and prayers are with you. And this is the response that we've gotten when we look at the trials, when we've had the Philando Castiles, the Sean Bells, the, I think, uh, Orlando Grant, I think it's his name in Fruitvale Station. When someone is, is you know, killed, if they're murdered, their life is taken. You hear the voice of not only Black people, but all, all nationalities now saying, yes, Black lives do matter. Because we do see that there is an inordinate amount of black people who are dying at the hands of white police officers. When you see that number of people that are dying and you calculate how many are unarmed and how difficult it is to hold law enforcement accountable for what they're doing. Now you have to say, my left arm is broken. Yes, the other limbs that I have are fine, but I have to put more attention on this left arm. And when you see me and you see that my arm is in a sling, you don't say, well, all your other limbs are important and they all matter. You say, hey, what happened to your arm? What's wrong with your arm? What type of treatment are you getting for your arm? So the same thing happens for us as a community of people. You know, we're brothers and we're sisters, right? So you mentioned empathy. Yeah, I agree that all lives do matter in the sense of the statement, but mm -hmm. when we say Black Lives Matter, it's to say that it's it's long overdue to acknowledge the fact that there are inequalities that yeah. have played towards our, our community and not just our community, but our psyche. Just like, like brief focuses on mental wellness and mental health. You know, we talk about getting pulled over. I don't know many of my white friends whose mom and dad had to sit down with them and talk to them about how to respond when you get pulled over. Yes. I, I remember my mom and dad talking to my brother and I before we even got driver's license about how to interact with police officers, with anyone in law enforcement. You know, if you do have to go to court, even if it's not to pay a fine, I remember having to, you know, get my driver's license and having to sit down with my parents. <laughs> about how to go in and get my driver's license because back then we had to go to the court. So I had to go and put on a nice dress shirt and slacks. I couldn't go in there with sweatpants. I couldn't go in there with a t-shirt or a hoodie, even though I wasn't you know, doing anything that was against the law. I had to go in there with that perception or that image because I had to you know, be fully aware of the fact that I am a black man and that I am perceived as a black man and my life isn't uh, put at the same value of, uh, of a white life. Um, and that's why most of my white friends didn't, uh, you know, when I, when I asked them, I said, hey man, did you have that conversation growing up? And most of them would say, no, but I still respect it and I fear the police. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong to respect and fear the police, but it is a complete problem to be completely afraid and to have, uh, like Bree said, almost having a panic attack and anxiety stricken when you see those blue lights behind you, 
because you know that you know I'm more likely to get three times more likely to get killed by a police officer mm. uh, compared to a white person. You know, this isn't just something that's made up. This is actual fact. This is statistic that you know I am more likely to get murdered, get killed, shot, or lose my life, however you want to look at it, compared to a white person. So yes, all lives do matter. But as a black person, someone has to shine the light on the problem and say, hey, look, that broken arm, we need to look at it and see what treatment we can put in place to, to really say that all lives will truly matter when black lives do matter. That was really, it's a really interesting take on it. Like when you talked about uh, um, having conversations with your parents why do you think it was that you had to have the conversation specifically about interactions with the police? I mean, to, to your point, I mean, yes, you, you are a young black man who it's sad to even think about your life, having your life, having less meaning than a white person's life. But why did those conversations have to be something that happened? Like, was there, was there experiences in your, in your, in your family's lives? And I mean, if there was, and they were, they were, they were bad. I don't want to, I don't want to bring it on you to talk about it, but more of a general question. Why is it that you have to cover off on those points with a young kid going to get their license? Like that should be a happy time for you in your life. It shouldn't matter what color your skin is. I mean, there's a lot of accomplishments and a lot of achievements we have as kids growing up and getting your license is one of the biggest and most impressionable things on you. You get that, that independence and that freedom. I jumped into and I ran with my freedom. It sounds like you went into your freedom handcuffed. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that. And I want to make it clear. You know, I have friends who are law enforcement, right? I have, uh, and, and, you know, all law enforcement is not bad. I'll make that very clear. Yeah. Um, right. But the key thing that you mentioned earlier is trust. So the very first time that I was pulled over with my brother, it was a simple uh, speeding ticket. You know, my brother was speeding. He, you know, we were, we were nervous, but we, we had the, we knew how to respond. Mm-hmm. You know, keep your hands visible. Yes, sir. No, sir. Make positive eye contact. But don't make eye contact too long because it can look come across as you know uh, combative. Uh, com- comply as much as you can, um, but also just try to keep it short and sweet. So the reason why I believe that we have to have this you know this 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 perspective or this approach is because when you look at history, it goes back to accountability. If an officer does something to me, it's really going to be my word against theirs and anything that I say can and will be used against me. It can and will be used against me. So the the Miranda right in and of itself creates this, this, uh, this division between us to where I'd love to talk to you and have interaction, but I also know that you have a quota to meet. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a law enforcement agent maybe about 10 years ago and we had this really awesome conversation and she said, hey, listen, we have a quota. I have a goal. My quota is to apprehend so many people. And if I don't apprehend so many people, then I may not get the next promotion that I'm supposed to get. So now if you're pulling me over, you know, and then I also have friends of mine who have had even more, more um, telling experiences. And probably the most questionable one I had was I was pulled over. I was told to take my hoodie off. I was on I-20 out in Georgia. I didn't think anything of it. I said, all right, I'm going to take my hoodie off. I'm going to go home and mind my business. Now I thought about it. He didn't pull me over for speeding. He didn't pull me over because of my tag light. He didn't pull me over because uh, I didn't have a seatbelt on. He literally said, hey, listen, uh, you have your hoodie on. You need to take it off. Now, this was in 2002. 
I was in, in high school at the time. I was a junior uh, getting ready for prom. And he tells me to take my hoodie off. Now thinking back, that was, that was an illegal stop. You can't pull anyone over and tell them to take their hoodie off. Um, so I think the reason why things are the way they are is because if you have any conversation with anybody, you look at the culture and you realize there's already systems in play that makes it difficult for us to be able to correspond and interact with each other. Uh, I, and again, all law enforcement is not bad. I, and I don't believe that they are, but there has to be a real, real conversation about what do you do when law enforcement's not being held accountable for what they're doing. And it's not just men. I mean, Bree, black woman, I know that, you know, it's not just us as men. I mean, it's black people in general, it's women as well that uh, have the same experience. So I want to ask you something about that, but before we do that, we're just going to take a quick break. All right, James. So you mentioned something before the break. Uh, you talked about being pulled over on, was it I-26 or something like that with, uh, and then illegally stopped. I mean, I don't know what constitutes an illegal search, but having an officer pull you over without justification and then telling you to take off your clothing, that sounds like an illegal search on top of an illegal stop, isn't it? I mean, I would guess so. I don't know. Kind of. So it wasn't a search. He, he, he literally just pulled me over and said, hey, look, you, you need to take your hoodie off. It was daytime. Uh, you know, I remember I was going to get fitted for uh, we had prom going on at the time. It was 11th grade. And, um, you know, he told me to take my hoodie off. And at the time, I didn't think as much about it until as the years passed, I thought more about it. So, yeah, I don't think that was right. Well, and, like, what you know, month was, was this? This was during the spring. So was there a law in Georgia where you can't wear a hoodie in springtime? I was playing baseball at the time uh, because, you know, just kind of thinking back about that. But I don't remember there being a law. If there was, he didn't tell me. He just said, hey, look, you take your your hoodie off. Um, But I mean, that was that was just that one time I remember working at Pizza Hut being told I looked suspicious. You know, it was like midnight. I was getting off of work and I was going uh, going home. My mom had had gotten an injury from bowling. I think she had broken her arm, broken her arm. And I remember trying to get home to kind of check, see how everything was going. And you know, I remember the officer telling me, hey, look, you, you look suspicious. That's what he told me. I was out late. I know I was young at the time I was 17. Um, but even then, I was thinking, what does, that, what does that even mean? But I knew better than to question taking my hoodie off. And I also knew better than to question looking suspicious. Um, so, you know, I didn't question them. I didn't give them any, you know, back talk as people would say, I listened to them and I went my way. But now that I'm older and now as I look back, I think, you know, they didn't tell me that I was, you know, speeding. I didn't have anything going on. And to answer your question, no, there wasn't anything about any laws that I can recall at that time about being able to get pulled over for looking suspicious or wearing your hoodie. Well, in my mind, having to take your clothes off so that somebody can get a better look at you is searching. Mm. that's to me is that's an arbitrary search. And I think that was an illegal search of a young person, never mind an illegal stop. That's terrible. Brie, have you had similar experiences as a young black girl? Um, so I have all brothers. Um, I've never, um, the only encounter that I can remember, it wasn't me driving or anything like that, but, um, some kids were fighting on our street. My brother was outside washing my mom's car at the time. And the police were called. <laughs> the uh, obviously the the call that came in 
because kids were fighting and the police automatically pull up to like our driveway and they approach my brother. And I remember my mom, we had like this big like window to where she could always see outside in the driveway. And so when my mom saw like, why are the police, you know, in my driveway, she kind of went outside and said, Hey, you know, what's going on? I was like, Oh, we had a disturbance. Kids were fighting. We're just trying to figure out. And my mom was like, well, no, that's further down that way. And even her still saying, no, it's down that way. They still were trying to make it like an issue as if my brother was involved, but my brother wasn't. Um, So that was that, you know, one encounter. But other than, I think I probably in my lifetime, I've been pulled over twice. Um, One was on my birthday. And I remember the guy was like, oh, you did a rolling stop. I probably did, you know. But um, other than that, you know, he's like, oh, okay. License and registration, took my driver's license. You see, it's my birthday. Fine, I'll give you a warning. Mm -hmm. Um, But like James said, just being able to know, like, let me just give them everything they want so they can go on about their way. That that has always been in the back of my mind. Let me not give lip. Let me not say anything back because I don't want to disturb you. I think now a lot of people with camera footage, because a lot of people know their rights and they are knowing the laws. They are now questioning and saying, hey, why did you pull me over? Is this a valid reason? Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to show that it's okay for you to do this? So I think because a lot of that is going on, I think that that pushes pushes officers to also kind of be a little combative or take take it personally so it's hey, interesting that's when such you... a good point go ahead james go ahead no i was <laughs> just gonna say that's such a good point uh you know Brittany, when you mentioned your rights because you're right you you, you may say that hey look i have the right to you know record or, or or do this but then you think at what cost and it takes bravery just to exercise your right and that just I, you just made me think about how, how crazy it is to to have to to be bold just to exercise that right because you can look at what the the repercussions could be of that because you could see in some of the videos how frustrated officers get when someone is just exercising that right even if yeah. they're far away so well the interesting part you had brought it up earlier James too was that the Miranda rights is can and will right? Be used against you. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, it's not even a, a, a can and may. It, it doesn't, it, it implicates you before you're even found guilty, right? And I know that that's always been one of the, the famous things is innocent until proven guilty. But I've always taken the states as being a bit backwards where you're found, like you're, you're, you're found guilty until you can be proven innocent. Mm-hmm. It, the justice system down there just seems like that's the way that it's been instituted, or at least the way it's been executed. Um, the other thing too, I wanted to ask you is what the hell does looking suspicious? What is that? Like, what is looking suspicious that you, because you're a young black man, was it because of the clothing you were wearing? Like, were you wearing like a, a long black trench coat with like your hood up and you had like goth makeup on? Like what, what made you look suspicious in the moment that justified somebody telling you the same thing? It was cold. It was springtime, springtime in Georgia beautiful all four seasons but springtime in Georgia it kind of starts off a little cold and I remember having a a burgundy hoodie on up top uh and I I know that I was leaving baseball practice getting ready to try on my uh my uh, prom uh suit my tuxedo uh so I probably just had on some you know some some shorts some pants or something but I know I had a, a hoodie on up top and to be honest with you whenever you go into a store you know, it's just known, and for me, where I'm from, Black community, just in general, anywhere I've been, 
you know, you, you probably don't want to have your hoodie on because it just kind of portrays a certain resemblance, unfortunately, from people when you're a black man and you have a hoodie on. It's just one of those things. Uh, so I would think that that probably was the perception that that law enforcement officer had. I mean, my windows weren't tinted. You could clearly see me. Uh, so I probably saw, hey, man, he's a black man with a hoodie on. He's probably doing some criminal activity to have something going on. So I probably thought that he was going to bump up and find out that maybe I had some legal narcotics in the vehicle or a legal weapon or firearm or something like that. Uh, so it was probably one of those indicators. So, I mean, obviously I mean, profiling, profiling people, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's it? Do you think that's an important job or maybe not important job, but maybe important is the wrong word. Do you think that that is a necessity in law enforcement that in order to be able to do your job properly, you have to be able to adequately profile people? I think it's okay to profile. I mean, it's necessary if you see someone with a trench coat on in the summertime. Yeah. <laughs> I worked in retail and, you know, even in retail, we said, hey, look, let's, let's, this is how you identify suspicious activity. Right. But there's also a necessary, um, there's also a need to be able to identify your biases, you know, halo bias and different biases that we all have. Uh, and our prejudices as well. You know, oftentimes we call something prejudice that may be racist or something racist is prejudice or bigot. We use those terms interchangeably. Uh, but I think that if we're able to say, hey, look, what is it that makes this person suspicious? Mm-hmm. Is it because he's been walking up and down this street for 15, 20 minutes? Uh, and does he live in this area or is he lost? Is he waiting for an Uber? And what is my intention? Am I afraid of this person because I think he's going to do something uh, criminal? Or is my intention to try and help try and help this person out? Uh, we saw the video that's been trending of the, the white military man who approached the young black man in the neighborhood and questioned him and bullied him. You know, what was it that he saw in this man? You know, from my eyes, I just saw that he saw a black man and just felt like he should intimidate him because he didn't think that black man should be in that neighborhood. Uh, so to answer your question, I think profiling isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the intention is what we have to really look at. I agree. So, Bree, do you think that people are profiled equally? And what I mean by that is like, if you were to see, if a police officer were to see in your experience, to see a white kid driving a car with his hood up or a white kid walking at 11 o'clock at night with a hoodie on, does he get approached the same way as maybe a black man or an Asian person? Absolutely not. Um, it would be, it would be easy for me to say yes, but, um, I'm going to say absolutely not. Of course, they're going to approach, you know, if, if a white kid is walking in a neighborhood, they're going to approach you. Hey, you need any help? (laughs) Everything. Okay. Are you, are you lost? Um, I think again, that, that profiling is more so what, what consciously, like, what are you feeling as to why you feel like you have to approach people differently? Mm-hmm. Why, why is it that bad people get this rep? Like, oh, we're always negative or we're always doing something that we don't have any business doing. Everybody's not like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would, it's not there. I haven't seen anything that says, oh, they approach this person differently or they treat everybody necessarily the same. I think that they think that black people have a bad rap. I think that even with the Trayvon Martin situation, Mm. um, George Mm. Zimmerman, when Mm. Trayvon Martin had, he was walking from the store new in the area because his dad had just moved over there and he walked to the store, had a hoodie on. Like I see most young kids do. I say to myself, why do you have a hoodie on and it's hot outside? Right. But it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you have this hoodie on, you're minding your business and you may have it over your head 
And you have someone like George Zimmerman who's like, oh, well, what are you doing? Oh, I've never seen you before. And oh, and you call the police and they tell you not to run after the person, but you make it your business to run after them. Why not allow the police to do their specific job? So I think that I think that Black people are just looked at as if we're always up to no good or that we're always doing something that we don't have any business doing. So I think because that image is there, I think that a police officer can have that conscience to say, oh, it's, they're probably doing something they don't have any business doing. So no, I don't think that we're looked at equally when it comes to that. James, you talked about your friends in law enforcement. Have you ever had these conversations with them about profiling or why why it is that the perception is that black people get treated or mistreated more so than white people or other races? I haven't asked that that question specifically, but the overall uh, view that I've kind of, my biggest takeaway has been that every officer comes into the agency with good intentions, but because the culture is so toxic, it's tough to remain in that same mindset with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that is, that's what it sort of boils down to is, is you know, I, And to be clear, again, I've been I've had multiple interactions with law enforcement from you being in marches where we were providing them water and snacks. I've been pulled over for, you know, four speed and not having my seatbelt on and just having a pleasant interaction. You know, a a couple of weeks ago, I was pulled over for uh, for going 10 miles over the speed limit. White police officer pulls me over. We actually had a decent conversation. Uh, And I thanked him for, for being so pleasant and polite. And he Thank me for complying and being so easy going. So there are these good experiences and positive experiences, but whenever it's a negative one, man, it carries so much weight. It's unbelievable how you continue to have this, this fear in the back of your mind as to, hey, man, this thing could easily go left really quickly and really easily, like uh, Bree just mentioned. So you just never know. When, when you think about the amount of things that have happened in 2020, I mean, there's one overarching issue that, well, I guess multiple ones, but there was one overarching instance that happened in 2020 that really changed the complex of social injustice and the issues of systemic racism. And I like the way that you worded it the other day, James, I think we talked about Thursday or so, and you compared the, the Derek Chauvin uh, trial and the George Floyd um, killing to its relevance or the amount of impact it had in society in relation to, to Rodney King. Can, do you remember what you had said? Like, can you, can you go over that again for me? Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, we're talking about the Rodney King trial, the, or the situation, the OJ Simpson case and the Chauvin case. And I remember that we, had, you know, I remember thinking, I remember the OJ trial. I remember you going to barbershops. I remember classrooms, teachers, you know, they had that own time. And I remember them saying that that was the trial of the century. Uh, and I remember the, uh, you know, people, how they talked about the uh, Rodney King situation, how that was, you know, that was a situation for the century as well. And, you know, I had some conversations with some, some friends and people and we said, hey, look, if that, if those were the trials or the, the OJ case was a trial of the century, then the Chauvin case has to be the trial of the millennia because you know, OJ captured the audience of all of the states, the entire nation, mm-hmm. the entire U.S. But the Chauvin trial, the George Floyd captured the globe. And it, it's led to what I call a, a socio-cultural paradigm shift 
to where now everyone's eyes are on this thing, almost like the Emmett Till case that brought everyone's eyes to see exactly what was going on. So I think that the impact that this this trial is is having, it, it, I'm not going to say that it's more important than what we saw with Rodney King or OJ, but it shows the magnitude of its impact and influence. And it goes back to what you mentioned with social media. You know, social media has a larger reach now than what it had back then. Back then, we would just turn on CNN or mm-hmm. you know the news. Now you can turn on any social media platform and everything is pointing towards that. So Bree, when you saw all that stuff start to happen in Minnesota with the video coming out, because I mean, that's the one thing that I really do appreciate about social media. Like, let me be honest, man. I Social media is one of those things where it has become a, such a divide in society mm-hmm. only because it's not that people didn't have the right to voice their opinion before or be passive aggressive with their perspective and talking about certain things. Now it's just amplified because of the amount of people that you can reach by being a keyboard warrior. That stuff drives me crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah, you can hide behind fingers. a screen and write whatever you want because yeah. you you feel stronger, you've got some courage. I guarantee you 85% of people that write the stuff that they have written or say the things that they've said if you had to stand face to face with that person, you wouldn't say it. Not a chance. So with that said, then, I mean, I'm really thankful that social media and CCTV is what it is with what happened with George Floyd. But what did, what was the takeaway? Like, what did you think when all that stuff was going down, Bree? Um, I think my first initial reaction, I was heartbroken. Um, to see a black man be, killed the way that he was killed um, definitely took me back. I know that prior um, a lot of, you know, black men and women, you know, were getting, you know, killed by police officers. But I remember this specifically. I remember laying in my bed, welling full of tears um, after just watching the entire video from start to finish. Um, It was definitely difficult for me um, because I know that I had to, you know, I have a black daughter and I had to express that to her. And I know that I have a black father and I know that I have all brothers and I know that I have male friends such as James, that that could have just been anybody, you know, that could have been anybody. So I do know for me, um, it really hit home and to know that he was from Houston and to know that I've been in the area as to where he grew up in and to know my current spouse teached football um at his you know at George Floyd's high school like all of that hit home for me as if I knew him and I had never met this man in my life so again um for me I took it personally um it was devastating to see again one of us get killed the way that we got killed so it it was a lot for me yeah James what about you I just want to say that was a really really good Really good. I agree with you 100% on that, uh, Brittany. Um, for me, I, so it was God, just thinking in, in that time frame, it was 2020, right? It was the spring of 2020 when this popped off or the summer. And there was already tension. You know, we in our in our in the back of our head, we already had all these other things that had happened. Sandra Bland, Orlando Castile, the guy at Walmart, you know, the Tamir Rice. There were so many names, right? Well, this to jump the year off, there was Ahmaud Arbery, 
for me in Georgia. That's my home state. And I know about Georgia. So to hear about Ahmad Arbery and to see that, you know, we we're all thinking, oh, man, those guys are going to get away. They'll get away. Um, so that, that at the time, you know, it was just what else is going to happen? And if you guys remember the series during that timeline, there was the bird watcher in New York. And the lady, I think her name's Amanda Reed, or I can't remember her name, but she said, hey, I'm going to call the police. And I'm going to tell them that you know, mm. you're stalking me or something like that. She weaponized the police. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have Ahmaud Arbery, you have that situation, and then you have George Floyd. And with George Floyd, we saw everything. And like Brittany said, I, I watched clips, I heard about it, I watched more clips, and I had the opportunity to watch the full video when it came out first on one of the many social media sites that it came out raw on, and I intentionally didn't watch it. And when I did, within the first few minutes, you know, I, I, could, I, I, was, I was overwhelmed with emotion because the fact that I knew that this man was about to lose his life and he was unarmed. Hmm. I remember some friends of mine calling me and asking me, hey, you know, what do you think about the situation? And saying things like, uh, hey, you know, it, he, he wouldn't have had to die if he would have complied. Hmm. He wouldn't have died if he would not have resisted. He should have just not resisted and he should have complied. Um, and I remember immediately thinking the police should not be the ones to, to uh, not only charge, but convict and sentence you out in the streets. And that's what happened to this man. He was arrested, uh, charged, convicted, and sentenced to murder on the streets mm-hmm. in front of people. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I remember saying that that's murder. I you know, said so the same thing when it happened at the Wendy's when the guy took the the uh, the, the taser and turned around Richard Brooks. You know, to me, I see that that's murder. If that happens on the street with two civilians, it's murder. The thing that shook me the most was Chauvin. I looked at it recently as we were talking about this. Is he looked directly in the camera while his foot or his knee was on the back of this man's neck, almost to to say. Yeah, I'm doing this. What you gonna do? Above the law, I know I'll get away with it. There's not gonna be any punitive response to this, and that's what made this so huge is the fact that he could potentially get away with it. We were all on pins and needles looking to see how what's the response gonna be to this, and it's because for so long we've been able to see officers get away with uh, situations like this. it wasn't the body cam of the police officer that was the damning evidence. It was a bystander who had their cell phone. So this is what's going on in the back of my head. There has to be some type of reform. There has to be some type of regulation. There has to be some type of overhaul of how we hold police accountable. And there also has to be some healing for the way in which we interact with law enforcement, because truly all of them are not bad, but that Chauvin trial definitely To answer your question, my response was one of, okay, now everyone sees this, and this is an opportunity for all of us to see the same thing and try to come to a healing uh, resolution so that this doesn't continue to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I I just wanted to start start off by uh, sending you my my thoughts because I, it's such a, 
I, I don't know what that's like to see my people get shot and killed or murdered every single day. Um, I don't deal with death well, especially when it's family. But to see that happen day in and day out, I mean, we don't see, when I say we, I mean Canadians, we don't see all of what happens every single day. It's like in the United States, there's more mass shootings or mass killings per year than there are days in the year. Yep. And we only hear about a couple of them. And mm -hmm. George Floyd, when it first happened, it had such a huge, um, it just brought up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. And I think in a good way, like, I think it was a really good thing to have conversations about what had happened. I'm just really sad to see it happen only because somebody lost their life. Like, I mean, that always seems to be the case is we start to analyze and we start to actually dig in on important topics in life after something bad happens. And it's just so unfortunate that that's what we leave it to. I, I do want to ask, though, do you think that the situation with George Floyd had anything more to do with the fact that this cop didn't give a shit? Do you think that the situation would have been the same had, the, had George's skin been white? Do you think that this had anything to do with George's skin color or did it have anything to do with this cop just being an asshole? I'm going to say both. Yeah. Um, I definitely think, like they said um, in court, oh, he was having a bad day. Fuck that. We all have bad days. Um, but I think that he was an asshole. And I think that because George was black, he wanted to prove a point. Just like James said, I'm going to look in the camera and let you know this is what I'm doing and what are you going to do about it? So, what do you think, James? Yeah, I, I, I was checking out a, a really interesting statistic, and you actually just hit on it, Daryl. And it's uh, from 2013 to 2019, according to mapping police violence, a thousand people are killed by police per year in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's how many people, are, like you said, it's way more than the days in the year. Mm -hmm. A thousand people per year, right? So over the course of six years, over 7,600 people have been killed by police officers. Now, here's the cool thing. And not the cool thing. The, the, the crazy thing is, is 95% of those officers were charged and 48 of those were convicted out of 7,600 killings. All right. Now, here's the thing the leading cause of death among young black men, the sixth, number six is interactions with police officers. They're black. So I'd love to say when folks say that, hey, look, I don't see color as a law enforcement or whoever you are, um, but we can't ignore the fact that it is a burning building. It's the equivalent of a burning building and you don't just walk by right? You see a building burning, you don't just walk by. If there aren't fired people out and somebody responding to it, you, 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 you say something needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So yes, yes, I, I will be very, I don't want to be uh, confrontational in, in my response uh, to mm -hmm. just kind of seem like I'm being a negative Nancy in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But I 100% believe that if George Floyd was a white woman, this, the case would not have been the same just so, wouldn't have been the same out of curiosity james what's number one to three on the top three reasons or the top three uh things causing black man's death in the united states you had mentioned that, I'd that... Have to look it up again, oh, okay i thought sure. i thought you had it with you there 
That was one that I wanted to just kind of see kind of where we fell in with interactions with law enforcement since that mm-hmm. was the dialogue. But I mean, yeah. I, I would think that it probably has something to do with health, diabetes and things mm-hmm. like that, okay. which is a whole other thing that impacts our community. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I mean, I watched, I didn't watch the video for a long time and then I decided that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to watch this because I think everybody, everybody is at least needs to be aware of what happened. Right. And to go back to the the point that you had brought up about having that person recording it on their cell phone, wasn't it a youth that was recording that video? It was a young yeah. person, I think 17 years old. So, yep. I mean, it's, it's already the mindset of, of youth to throw things on social media for awareness, good and bad, right? Like, I mean, they live on their phones and I mean, they live on social media. I get it. But when your initial reaction to a situation like that is, I'm going to put this on video and I'm going to put it out there for the world to see. That's such an incredible shift in, in mentality from where I am right now. Like, I don't do that. Like, I don't record everything. But so, you know, you, you kneel on somebody's neck for nine and a half minutes. Tell me where ever that that's ever been a situation that's been faced where somebody's in handcuffs on the ground and you've need to kneel, you've had to kneel on their neck for, for that period of time. I mean, you could have murdered somebody. You're in custody now, right? Those cuffs are on. That cop should come off. You're in custody. I don't care if you're fighting or not. You don't need to be on somebody's neck. So how was that ever, you know, you talked about being on pins and needles for the outcome of that trial. How was that ever justifiable? How is it ever justifiable? It's a five-on-one fight at that point. Five-on-one. I, I just don't get it. I don't understand that. It's just, to me, it's, it's just never okay. And so when I heard the guilty verdict, I was kind of like, duh. Like 100% it should be guilty. 100% it should be guilty. Like watching, I mean, it, common sense, right? Like that's just, you can't do that. Like who, how could you justify watching somebody walk away from something like that? But I mean, with that said, um, I do agree. It's the trial of the millennia, but I guess the next thing that I want to talk about is where do we go from here? And I say that from a global perspective is how do we go? Where do we go from here? So we'll talk about that right after the break. All right. So with this, trial of the millennia what does the outcome now mean for social justice i know that's a huge question so there's probably going to be a lot of input or a lot of different things that can can be affected by it but what does it mean for social justice whoever wants to go nothing yet <laughs> i still need the officers that was there with Chauvin. <laughs> i need them to get uh y'all y'all can get some too um because <laughs> And, and somebody could have helped out and said, hey, get off his knee. I, I feel as though nothing has yet. Do I think that it's opened up a lot of eyes? Absolutely. Um, do I think that a lot of people came together? I was out there protesting when it all first happened. And I was mm-hmm. in protest, and I saw more than just black. I mm-hmm. saw body. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was amazing. Um, but I, I feel like it's moved maybe this 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 much um as far as social justice but i need i need young folks say i need the court systems to have that same energy when it comes to people like Derek chauvin who feels like i can be an asshole today and i'm going to murder this person and i don't care what anybody else says so i think it's more of um this is a start 
I think it's again open people's eyes, but I think that we need to continue to hold people accountable. Um, the the officer, the taser, and the gun. I mean, accountable. Um, can, I can name a few more, but just holding people accountable. That's that's our biggest thing for me. James, let's say you. Nicely put, uh, Brianna. Say. Well, so what, what are solutions, right? That's what we're talking about. How can we find a solution? Kind of how can we heal, right? It's kind of what we're focusing on. I would no. say number one, <laughs> number one um, I, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about defunding the police. Mm. And when people say let's defund the police, I mean, I know that that, a lot that stirs up a lot of folks on both sides. And I think defunding the police to some folks means that, hey, we abolish law enforcement altogether. Uh, but what I have kind of taken away, especially with talking to folks in the black community, my family, my people in like Brittany mentioned Third Ward and all these different communities that house a large number of black people, it's not to abolish law enforcement but it's to really change the focus of the resources from a punitive, punishable response to providing a resourceful, empowering response, right? So instead of, you know, if, if my, I see my brother that's struggling from, uh, uh, from overdosing on drugs or having a mental illness, I'm not expecting a law enforcement officer to respond with his firearm, you know, you wouldn't have a nurse respond to, uh, you know, a shootout. You know, you, you would have a counselor or a therapist respond to certain things that they're experts in. I think that law officers are in a very unfair and, you know, just uh, a, a losing battle when they respond to a situation that they don't have the training for. Um, so I think that, no, not defunding the police in the sense that we abolish them, but shifting the way that we allocate the resources to make sure that when they do come to the scene, that they are properly uh, equipped. And that doesn't mean that they're pulling up with semi-automatic rifles for a 13-year-old kid who's, you know, probably having a, you know, a mental breakdown. It means that they're responding in the sense of coming from a place, like you said, from the beginning of empathy. Mm -hmm. I think number two is in the community. I, you know, I've said this for a long time is that I think that if you are law enforcement in an area, you know, one of my really good friends who's a law officer, he doesn't live too far from the area that he patrols. Um, so he kind of ha has an idea as to who the community individuals are that he's patrolling. I think if you have an officer who lives an hour away from the area that he's patrolling and he has no investment in that community, then he's just going to see a number like the person that I had spoken to that said, hey, there's a quota for this. I have a quota to apprehend people. So now you just see numbers, right? Versus seeing, oh, that's Brittany. She's, I know Brittany. Let me go talk to her. Uh, that's Daryl. I know Daryl. He's in my area. Let me go talk to him. Mm -hmm. You know, there are those times when you have those community individuals that'll say, hey, 
get me officer such and such. That's the only person I want to talk to, right? That shows that there is some relationship involved. And that's how we get trust. Uh, and, and I think that if you do that, and then we also address the whole militarization of law enforcement. Uh, you know, you, the more and more now when you see law officers, they do look like they're uh, a military force. They don't look like somebody who's a peace officer. Um, so I think that those are ways that we can start the healing process, <clears throat> excuse me, and also, you know, us just being able to have forums where we have people in the community talk to representatives of law enforcement and say, hey, listen, there's not necessarily a, 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 a George Floyd situation that just happened. We just want to come to the community and see what's going on with, with the people in the community. Have the law officers go to the schools and talk to the students at the, at the, at the uh, you know, those black students at those schools in the inner city. Go and have a lunch day. Those are practical things. You know, uh, Brittany, you have a daughter. You know, having a, a law officer that says, hey, look, I really want to take time to get to know some of her friends and just maybe even let her see what a cop car looks like. I remember when I was in kindergarten, we had a police uh, car come. He played his siren for us. And, you know, he kind of talked to us about what he normally does. And he let us look in his car and all that. And it really built some type of relationship. But that was a long time ago. The that yeah, and the firefighter. Yes, with the truck. You have them raise the ladder up. Yeah. And that that says that says to us is, oh, these guys aren't, they they're they're not my enemy. We're in this community together. Uh so I think those are practical ways that we can improve this thing. Man, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um two well, three things that really came up um that I wanted to just touch on real quick. I don't do you think that Derek Chauvin meant to kill George Floyd that day? Like, do you think that that's what the intention was? Was that he had meant to kill or was it more so the mindset that he's like, I'm in charge of this situation. I don't give a shit what anybody says or does. I'm in control and I will do as I want to do. And by default, it meant somebody was going to lose their life because of that. I mean, I, I have a hard time thinking that that guy woke up that morning that he just wanted to go out and kill somebody. You know, I just think that he let that power go to his head and it didn't matter what situation he was faced with. He was going to do it the way he wanted to do it, period. I don't, I don't think anybody wakes up and, and says, I'm, I'm going to kill, you know, like James has repeatedly said, you know, not all officers are, are bad. Mm -hmm. um, be before we knew who a Derek, again, I watched the case from start to finish and they showed like video footage of him with his wife. I think she was like in a, contest with miss i don't know miss wherever they are and um he had on a suit he looked like a normal guy so to say he woke up and was like i want to murder somebody today no um but i think that as as a human race we don't take a step back to think about everything we mm -hmm. are like james said the other day people are trigger happy and people are just ready to do whatever instead of taking again like you said that approach that empathy approach mm -hmm. um just watching the entire video footage from start to finish to me it felt like even George Floyd wasn't completely in the right state of mind that that's just me being completely honest um so again to take that approach and say do we want to call police officers out uh, yeah obviously there was a situation fake 20 bill whatever the case may have been 
But in this case, it's like, who else can we bring in to try to deescalate the situation mm-hmm. and maybe try to speak to somebody to figure out what's going on? So do I think he woke up and said, I want to murder somebody? No. But do I think that, like you said, that badge, he, hey, he, he, somewhere in his childhood, he struggled. And that day, I think that and I'm not a licensed professional, <laughs> but that day, um, I think everything went to his head. Yeah, I, I was doing some reading on on Derek Chauvin about his history and stuff like that. I think that, you know, yeah, the, the guy messed up man, and he was found guilty of murder and rightfully so. I put I put some of this on Minneapolis, though. Like, I feel like they didn't put him in a situation to be successful. Like with That's his true. background and all the stuff that he had going on, you know, like his wife left him the next day. Like there's to me that says that there were so many things happening in the background that people were just overlooking every single day. And Brie, you got kids, you know what it's like. You got to check in with people to find out how they're doing. And if they're not doing well, you need to make sure that you're giving them the tools and the resources that they need to be successful. And that's our job. That's our job. We got to be putting people in a situation to be successful. And if we can't do that, then we've got to reassess on what we're doing. I think that's James, where you're talking about defunding the police like I know that that whole idea came up, came up North here. And I disagree with the defund the police movement because I don't think that police have enough of the resources that they need to do the job to begin with. But I think what it has to do with is, is making sure that finances get allocated in the proper places to make sure that those other agencies are available. And that if anything, I think police need more money because they need more. What just happened? That was weird. My screen just went black. They need more, they need more training. They need more resources to do the job properly. Cause I mean, if they can't get, if they can't go into a situation being able to be number one in control of that situation, whether it's verbal communication or just police tactics, then they've already lost. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you need more funding. You need to be able to give people that additional funding for training and to be able to have those things happen you know, it, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to look at when we want to get rid of funding towards police because they need it. I think more now than ever, like I know my, a lot of my friends up here, law enforcement as well. And, you know, like the ratio of people that they police right now was one officer to roughly every 1000 people, you know, so now you take somebody, put them in that position, and then you don't give them the training that they need to deal with mental health issues. You don't give them the training they need to be able to deescalate situations properly. You don't give them the, the proper tactical training that they need. That's just like that. That's why I say there's got to be accountability all the way up. Like you need to really assess that situation as an organization and be like, are we doing the best for our members or our police officers or our employees that we can? And I feel like Minneapolis did a complete disservice to their community and to Derek that day. And I mean, even the four officers, I mean, if you don't have officers that you can count on to stand up in a situation when they see one of their fellow police officers doing wrong, then all five of those people shouldn't have been on the street that day. They weren't in the right mindset to make the decision that they should have been able to make that any normal person watching that going, this is fucked up. We shouldn't let this happen. And everybody that stood around that group of five officers knew that that was wrong, but they all knew that they couldn't do anything about it. And that's just a shameful situation. Yep. So the key thing that you said, Daryl, is that they knew it was wrong, but they couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, it could be, yeah, you're, I, 
uh, you're the you're the expert on kind of what's going on in the, the climate there. So it could very well be that it could be more money that's needed there. But here in the states, I would I would argue that it's not a need for more money as much as it is a revamping and a reforming of the culture, because we have money. I mean, when you look at, at here in Houston, where we are, Texas, law enforcement, they drive very nice vehicles. They have very nice equipment. They have the resources that they need, but it's not being allocated in a way that benefits one them and the community. Okay. I, you know, I, I think I don't I don't think that for us we need money as much as we need to revamp the culture. So if you guys are familiar with Camden's situation, they were the one successful. Um, Camden, New Jersey, was one of the one successful cities who actually did defund the police. It didn't mean that they did away with the police. It just means that they revamped what the use of force meant. And once they did that, they saw that the, the amount of violence that was taking place significantly decreased. Um, and I think that if we did that here in the States, if we look at what use of force looks like and redefine what that looks like and how often it needs to be used, which goes back to your point as far as training, mm -hmm. we have the money it's just, what are we going to do with it? What if we actually hire more therapists and counselors on the force instead of getting all of the, you know, getting grenades? You know, why, why do you need a grenade to uh, police some of these neighborhoods, uh, especially some of these neighborhoods where you're not even coming into contact with people that are, you know, you're needing to de-escalate situations that way. Let's get counselors in the community. Let's get therapists in the community. Let's get people who are mental health uh, experts in the community. Let's do that. Because if you require a law officer to be able to do all of those things all at once, then yeah, that's definitely going to be too much pressure and weight on their shoulders. Yeah. I really like that idea of being able to have the police offer those services. Like you don't need to walk into a police station just to talk to a police officer. You need to walk into a police station so that you can talk to uh, you know, like a child and family services employee, or you can talk to somebody about mental health and it doesn't need to be that they're doing the service for you, but you got somebody there who can actually point you in that direction. And I would say to, to take that one step further, make sure that those police officers have those resources at their own disposal, right? Like if some guy's going through something or gal, let them have the resources. You know, I, I don't know that they do or that they don't. I mean, I just think everybody, like every, we've all got to be aware of everybody's situation in life. And yeah, I think that profiling people is a requirement of the job, but I also think it becomes a little bit too much when we think that every person who's doing, you know, who's wearing a certain type of clothing, who has the same style, same color of skin, that they're all doing something bad. That is, that's not, that's not what it is. It's coming down to, you're talking community policing. James, you're talking about getting to know the officers in your area. Then if you decide to profile after that, it's because you know who you're dealing with. You mm -hmm. know, the, you know, the people, you know, the community, you know, the bad people, the bad hotspots, you know, all these different things. Um, but what happens is they don't do that. And then they don't get taken care of by their bosses. And they have, uh, you know, they, they were on a bender for two weeks because their wife left them. And all of a sudden now they're on the street carrying a gun and mm -hmm. they said, go take care of the situation for me. Hmm. that's just a failure I think on everybody's part and I don't think officers get well I know they don't get paid a lot and <laughs> like at all um so I can only imagine being in that headspace 
and having to be put on a street around people or in a community that you're not accustomed to or that you never really hung around, you know? So, I mean, I, that's why I said I, I can get both sides of the spectrum because I did want to go into that space of being a police officer. So I understand that too. When I think I a lot definitely of definitely see you with the left hand. I think a lot of that just has to do with being vulnerable, right? Like when you, if you have to be a police officer in a community, you're not familiar with the last thing you want to do is be vulnerable. You need to be the right. person who upholds the law and who, who is the steadfast come hell or high water, whatever situation you're supposed to be facing. But I also think you got to understand too, that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to not be in control when it comes to walking into a brand new community. But how do you do that? Right. And that's what James, I think that's what you're talking about, talking about is, having different resources and different things to your advantage to be able to do those things so that you can be effective, to be properly effective and have some kind of tangible conversations, communications, connections, relationships with the communities that you're policing. I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. And think about this. If I want to be a teacher, I have to have so, so much time of certification and a degree and take these tests, right? If I want to be a nurse or in, in the medical field, you know, at certain levels, I need to have certain levels of education and, and real legit training and certification. I don't know much about the police training and kind of what what that looks like. But I do know that it would be great if there was more formal education requirement training for you to have to become a law enforcement officer because you're carrying a deadly weapon. Mm-hmm. How is it that if I'm a doctor or I'm a nurse, someone who can help someone heal, they, they have to go through so much training and academic studies, but to be a law enforcement officer, that yeah, it's like same six standard is there. It's six to eight months, right? Yeah. So I, I would think that, hey, let's look at, let's look at really having a whole over, overview, overhaul of a really robust experience to make sure that there is real training or real academic uh, structure set in place to make sure that when you come out of that training, you are now completely equipped with what you need to know in order to uh, walk around with a, a firearm. So do you think that recruiting police officers in the States has focused more so, or do you think that maybe it's not such a focal point as it is cause and effect? Like, do you think that there are people of color who want to become police officers after they see what's going on in the States? Do you think that it's do you think that the ratio is higher for white people to want to do it? Like, why is it that it always seems to be white, white officers shooting and killing black people? I think it depends on the area. I think it depends on the community, the region and the culture of that region. As I mentioned in the intro in the beginning, you know, there, there is, there are small towns that I did research. Uh, my, well, my professor did research on it. We kind of talked about some of his studies and, one of the interesting things were that a lot of the law officers were members of the Ku Klux Klan. So that was a pipeline for people who wanted to go from what their thoughts were about the community and how to kind of help impact that community. There are Black people that I know who are law enforcement officers. You know, one of my family members is, uh, he's a bounty hunter and those guys are phenomenal. They love what they do. Uh, I'm like Brittany. I, I even thought about, you know, law enforcement when I was younger because uh, I wanted to do the high speed chases. That was the only reason. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, I want to be Batman. And that was the closest thing, right? Yeah, I want to chase some cars, man. Yeah, like need for speed. 
um, but yeah, I think that there are there are a lot of a lot of uh, people who are um, black who decide that they want to get into law enforcement for the right reasons. Um, but I, to to answer your question, I'm really not. Uh, I don't know the answer as to why you have uh, you know that that disparity in in uh, in law enforcement. Well, maybe we should maybe we should push Bree to go do that. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, need for speed. <laughs> no, that, I mean to each their own. Everybody's got their own. I just think at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of things that come to it. But I mean, if you if you're a young person in society, I, I don't think it really matters what color your skin is in the states right now. I don't think you could pay enough people to become a police officer. Unfortunately, because I think there's probably a lot of gratification you'd get from being a police officer in communities. I just don't think you could pay enough people to do that. Yeah, I was uh, talking to an older white guy. Um, he actually works at my current job right now. So he's like in the, he's a retired police officer, but the department that he in, the department that he's in, he like does insurance fraud and stuff like that. And um, we were having a discussion maybe like two weeks ago. And I was telling him, I was like, yeah, you know, I want to be a police officer. And he was like, mm. he's like, you wouldn't want to do it right now. <laughs> like, and he's a retired police yeah. officer, older yeah. white cat. So, you know, to hear him say that, you know, definitely just, it, it kind of proved the point. Like they, they, they actually have a bad rep right now. So. Did you ask him about why he said not to do that? Like, was it only because of the year or the things that were going on or was there more? to um, it? We didn't go into detail because I was there for another reason to speak to him. Oh yeah. Um, but when he made that comment, I was like, and I'm, and I mean, like he probably had to be like in his like sixties, late sixties. So yeah. Just it makes you wonder, hey, just like stop and be like, yep. huh. Yeah. I mean, a exactly. lot of it too probably has to do with, you could probably make twice as much money doing half as much work because there's a lot of other <laughs> jobs out there that'll pay you tons of money yep. just to do nothing. Yeah. You know, like I, I, Costco up here pays 25 bucks an hour, if not more than 25 an hour and you get benefits. Yeah. That sounds good to me. I don't mind stocking yep. shelves, right? Like that's pretty easy to do. Right. And you, then you give somebody... A gun and be like okay we're gonna pay you less and you're gonna go deal with drug dealers and arrest murderers and you're gonna go deal with all this stuff because that's really the that's at the end of the day that's what you think about right like that's when you think about being a cop you think about all the the crazy things that they do but you don't think about videos of these police officers playing basketball with kids on the side of the street you know stopping to play a game of 21 or there was that one officer that just showed up one day and like you know did those uh it was a street court somewhere and he just shows up, does some like backward shot, makes it and walks away. And it's like, those are the videos that I think society needs to see. Like you need to see those community policing videos and see that they're just people. They're not a uniform. We paint them all with a brush to say that they're all the same, but they are just people. Just yeah. like me. And they all make mistakes just the same as you and you and I do. Like it's, but we need more of that. Don't we? I agree. Yeah, yeah, we need more of that. They do make mistakes. The thing is, is their mistakes, I think, are costlier. And that's, that's what we're seeing that is why we're where we are, is that the mistake that the lady made when she thought that she had a, you know, a taser and it was a gun, you know, those, those mistakes just kind of come with a different price. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that if we see more people that are on that human side, I think that'll build that trust. Also, make people want to apply for the position. <laughs> yeah, we've become yeah we've become the application system here. The one thing though, like when you talk about, um, 
I, I know what you mean when you talk about that officer who pulled her taser instead of her gun. To me, though, I don't know how you mistake that. You know, like that, I just don't know how that works. So if I'm sure everybody knows about it, like you're an officer pulling up to the scene, Kim Potter was her name, and she, 26 year veteran. So like they go through training, they have to shoot their gun X amount of times per year to make sure that they're current with the qualifications. I'm sure they have certain kinds of standards they have to uphold. How do you mistake that? Like, and yeah, we, she, she was me? a trainer, right? It was yeah, a trainer. Was a trainer. Yeah. How do you make that mistake? You know, and we, it's easy for, for us to all analyze that stuff because I mean, in the heat of the moment, you got to think like they only have a certain few seconds to react to the situation that they're faced with. And so it's really hard to judge, but now that you've got body cams and now that you have all this, the information around you and you see something like that, it's like, how, that's such a catastrophic mistake. How do you do that? Was she in the right mindset that day? Like, how do you, like, I watched it and I remember hearing the word taser be yelled and there's a gun. So I'm like, oh, is somebody else going to shoot a taser? Like what? All I see is a gun. And all of a sudden you hear bang, bang. And then the car drives away and she's like, I just shot him. And you're like, what the fuck just happened? Like, how do you do that as a 26 year veteran of the force? Like, man, like you're not in the right headspace at all in that moment. Which is why it goes back to that. How can we trust you? Yeah. That, that proves our point directly. Like that, that proves my point directly. How can we trust you? Yeah. Like that that's a big that's a big ass mistake like yeah, i can't call that mistake. <laughs> like like well, and, it, <laughs> and it and it directly impacts two people dante Wright, who's dead and now mm-hmm. who she's going to jail never mind the families and the in the trickle down effect or cascade effect that it's going to have on the family members of everybody involved now you've got people looking at the brooklyn center police force as Hey, you guys had Kim Potter work for you. Like, don't shoot me. Like, make sure you got your taser, not your gun. Like, everybody's going to analyze the situations that they're facing now. But I mean, it's more than just that, right? Like, you talk about mistakes, and I don't know, but Breonna Taylor is another huge one right now. Crazy. You know, like, I mean, was that a mistake? You know, like, mm-hmm. how, how do you how do you look at those things? I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I think with oh, go ahead, Bree. No, go. Let me digest. So I think there's a lot to unpack with the, the officer who thought that she had her taser or allegedly thought that she had her taser. Um, it reminds me of the Fruitvale Station situation with Oscar Grant. Same situation. Um, similar. And he, he had the, the guy pinned down and then shot him as he was handcuffed or being handcuffed. Um, in this situation, the the thing is, is none of this would have happened had it been a legal stop. My understanding is, is that the stop wasn't even legal. Mm-hmm. Was that she was, you know, they were stopping this man for, I guess, uh, I think a warrant and come to find out he wasn't even, uh, he didn't receive the warrant in the mail. And there was just su- such ambiguity in kind of the reason why he was even stopped. So I think that, that that creates a whole other topic as to you know reasons why people are being pulled over. You know, these illegal stops, sort of like that officer, the uh, the the military guy who was pulled over in the SUV and he was pepper sprayed. And he shouldn't have even been stopped in the first place. 
you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, uh, uh, Reed shouldn't have jumped in this car and taken off. If he wouldn't have jumped in the car and taken off, then, you know, it wouldn't have mattered. She wouldn't have had to reach for a taser or a gun. No, he should have been pulled over in the first place. So I well, think if we look. Or, or you, you know the guy's identity. You know where he lives. You've got his information. If he wants to run, let him run. Like, what's the point? I mean, there's, there's no good situation that's going to come of you trying to stop somebody who wants to leave in a vehicle. Nothing good's going to come from that. So he runs. Let me ask you, what's the worst thing that happens? Hmm. <laughs> he gets away and then you, you get him later. Find him, find, find him another day. Cops, the show cops. <laughs> those, yeah. people, those officers used to really run after people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm just confused as to like, are we not conditioned to run after people anymore? I mean, I don't know. Chase after people anymore. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just, you know, people probably get just caught up in the moment, right? Hey, listen, James, I'm going to, like, I want to jump in your car and drive away. And you're like, no, screw you. I'm going to jump in the car and I'm going to take off. Like, what good is going to come from that? Like, I'm going to pull you out of a moving car. So then the car is moving and there's no driver and it hits somebody. Or I get run over by the vehicle as it's trying to leave. Or like, what good comes from that? And I know everybody wants, you know, like the police officers, like, I'm going to get my guy. I'm going to, I'm going to arrest this person because they need to be arrested. And I just look at it from this standpoint is, what is the, what is the 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 end goal of that day? It is is it to make sure that you protect and serve and go home safe and alive, or is it catching anybody at any cost? Any cost. You could you could go hmm. find him later. You got his driver's license. You know his vehicle license information, and even if he's not at home, you'll find him. You'll find him another day. It just I think be- what you see is oh go ahead. No, no, I'm, I was done. I think what you see are power struggles. You know, it's power struggles. And then you also see uh, the, 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 you know, I, I'm telling you that this is what you need to do. And if you do not do it, now you're going to see my extent of my power. And mm-hmm. I'll be able to show you that, you know, th- this is going to be the end all be all here. I'll get the last word mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Uh, and that's why you see situations like that. And unfortunately, back to your, your initial question, Daryl, yeah, yeah, it is normally black folks that we see that are the ones that are ended up getting the, the greater brute of, amount of force. I think it was in Milwaukee when the, the white guy was leaving the mall and he was in his white pickup truck and the officers were trying to get him to stop. And he gets in his truck, he drives off and the officer jumps on the car to try to stop the man. And the officer... They don't shoot. There's an officer who has his rifle in, on, on his side, another officer near the truck who has his firearm, but they don't point it at the car or anything. And they drive, the driver of the truck drives off while the officer is hanging on to the truck. Anybody listening, you can just Google the you know, guy in the truck and drives off. And I think it's Milwaukee with the officer on. But this is a white guy who was driving. I have no doubt that this is a black guy. He probably would not have been able to uh, get too far like we saw in Grant. So I think you, what, you, what we're getting are power struggles. And then we also get this mindset that, hey, look, you asked the question earlier, did, did uh, Chauvin wake up with the mindset of, hey, am I going to go kill someone? I think he, he had the mindset that, hey, I can do what I want and there's not going to be any real repercussions for it. Mm-hmm. And what that does is, is it creates the perfect storm for 
killing someone. So if I know that I can go out and I can do something and I'm not going to be held accountable or held to the same standard, then yeah, I'll be able to, to uh, have more careless activity. So I really wonder too, how much of their training plays into the outcomes of these situations, <laughs> you know, like how many times did they go through training to go over traffic stops to go over dealing with people, extracting them from a car properly, how to manage, like how to effectively handcuff somebody. You know, when you're dealing somebody who, you know, Bree, you had mentioned it, George didn't look like he was right mentally at the time of his arrest. Like what was the training at the time to deal with those kinds of situations? Was it adequate? You know, like, okay, so I'm dealing with somebody who may or may not have had a fraudulent $20 bill and the guy seems like he's just out of it mentally, like maybe he's on drugs or something like that. Did anywhere in there sound to you like you needed to kneel on his neck for nine and a half minutes? You know, I pull over this car and I find out that Buddy's got a warrant and he doesn't want to be arrested. So then he tries to get back in his car and drive away. Well, where does the training in that show that the the actions that this guy's taking is directly result resulting in an officer drawing her gun? Or even taser for that matter. Like why like what's the cause and effect of that? Is there a direct correlation to some of these situations that they're facing that maybe the way that they're they're implying their force is totally is totally off from where it should be? Because those things just don't add up to me. Hmm. But but then again, maybe it is officer specific. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that you can train empathy as well. I think that you know, you see a George Floyd situation and you say, hey, listen, this guy has, like you guys mentioned, he may not be in the right state of mind. Well, if if I have empathy, I'm going to try and figure out hey, what's going on with this guy. Oh, he needs $20. I'll give the guy $20, right? Um, and he go on to, to do what he needs to do. And now, you, you know, you've built more community. Mm-hmm. But if you have a quota to meet or maybe you're having a bad day and Maybe you don't have anyone in your community that you've talked to who looks like a George Floyd, then you probably already have those biases that we talked about to where you're already thinking, man, this guy's criminal. He's big, brute, brawny looking man. So he's already going to be most likely violent and confrontational. So you're already coming to the table with the bias. So uh, I think, you know, with, with training, we need that. Obviously, it's going to help. But there also is that that there has to be a desire to want to connect on a human level, to empathize, to see, okay, what's really going on with this person and how can I really serve this individual versus finding some punitive action uh, Mm -hmm. for whatever he's doing. And it comes back around to the discussion and the conversation that should be had about what empathy is and why we need more of it. That will do it for part one of our talk on social injustice here on the Billy Wonka Experience. Thank you to James and Brittany for taking the time to talk with me today. We are going to be back very soon with part two. You can find my podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stick around for part two because it's coming to you very soon. Bye.